1: Hi, welcome back to the New Books Network. My name is Adam Bobeck, and I'm a PhD candidate in cultural anthropology at the University of Leipzig. I am beyond excited to have Professor Michael Muhammad Knight on the show today to talk about his new book, Metaphysical Africa, Truth and Blackness in the Ansaro Law Community. Michael Muhammad Knight, is Assistant Professor of Religion and Cultural Studies at the University of Central Florida, and is the author of countless books, including The Five Percenters and Muhammad Forty Introductions. Today, we're talking about Metaphysical Africa, published in 2020 with the Pennsylvania State University Press. Professor Knight, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks for having me. This is so awesome. I really appreciate this.
1: Can you tell us why you decided to write this book? Uh, yeah, so it's, um, you know, it's it, it
2: comes from a long, 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 long time of engaging this community. So I, I, I started collecting material from, you know, the Ansarullah law uh, about 20 some years ago. And it, it came out of my work with the five percenters, my work with um, what might be clumsily called heterodox African-American Islam, you know, more broadly speaking. Uh, but it's, it's very different from. Some of that previous work. So, you know, my, my work with the five percenters was very, very, very uh, complicated in terms of you know my insider outsider status. You know, I, I went into that community uh, not really equipped or, or trained to think about you know not only the baggage that I was bringing into it, but also the way that the experience would transform me. And so, you know, I, I got to a point where, you know, I've been so deep in in five percenter narratives and community that. I really didn't know if I was a 5%er or not. You know, I really had to think about that. And what, what's, how do I relate to this, this world? Um, and whether or not there's, you know, a place for me in it. And there, there's definitely a place for it in me. With this community, it was, it was more detached. It was more an engagement of a textual archive, which is one way to do it. And certainly not the only way to do it. Um, but it, it wasn't the, the intimate ethnographic project, or, or you know, that, that kind of um, search for personal meaning that that kicked off my my work with the Five Percenters. It was in the course of my work with the Five Percenters and, and my fascination with, with Master Farad Muhammad, the founder of the Nation of Islam, that I began to engage this community that had its own really, really compelling narratives about Farad Muhammad, Elijah Muhammad, and the Five Percenters, and um, Islam more broadly. And I just kept gathering more and more and more and more material, and you know, twenty years later, I just have an office full of boxes of stuff marked Nubian or, or Ansar. Um, in terms of why, so that, that that's, that's my personal engagement. Like that's that's how I came to find this community really compelling and you know something that, that drew my attention. Why I, I felt there needed to be this book was as I tried to engage the academic sources, they did a really bad job. You know, in, in general, in general, um, because it's it's a vast corpus of materials, no one has seen all of it. I haven't seen all of it. There's just so much media out there. But even after spending 20 years collecting it, I don't have all of it. Um, but academic work on this community really, really looked at them superficially. And so I, I've, I've two two real things that I'm doing with this book. Number one, they exist because they kind of disappeared from Islamic studies, the the academic study of Islam in America. And uh, I I wanted to bring them back and say this is something that if you're a scholar of American Islam, you need to know about this community. Uh, And number two, let's take them seriously. With this this community, there's a really easy way to fall into the, the cult narrative. That these are people who just blindly followed a charismatic trickster who was simply in it for his own personal gain and manipulated and exploited and abused them, and I am actually not, you know, saying anything to his sincerity one way or the other. Um, I'm not, I'm not his apologist or his defender or his cheerleader at all. Um, but he is not the entirety of this community's story. That there are actually people who engaged this and found meaning in it and circulated those meanings and disseminated them and found truth in his literature so when i'm looking at, at this media you know I'm, I'm looking at rational arguments you know not not uh, not charisma not um you know his his cult of personality but his arguments with scripture with history with the traditions that people were already using that were already resources in their lives and saying, you know, there, there is a very surprising to, to outsiders. Like there's a very surprising amount of coherence and consistency to them.
1: Before we get into the community itself, I wanted to talk for a moment about the title. The title of the book is metaphysical Africa. Why, why did you choose to call it metaphysical Africa?
2: So in um, Catherine Albanese's book, uh, Republic of mind and spirit, uh, where she's looking at metaphysical religion, esotericism, quote unquote, new age stuff in North America. She uses the term metaphysical Asia to think about the ways that practitioners and seekers imagined Asia in their minds as this land of spirituality and um, the way that they, they used resources from Asian traditions in ways that may or may not have corresponded to the ways that actual living flesh and blood people in Asia were using these materials or thought about them. But the way that uh, there's this metaphysical Asia that's kind of recreated in North America. And so there's something going on similarly with this community. There's a metaphysical Africa, the, the connections that they draw between uh, Islam and Africanity, particularly at a time when you know there was this kind of polar division of anti-Muslim afrocentrists and anti-black Sunni revivalists. and they're finding this third way, and they're they're articulating Islam as uniquely distinctly African, and also uh, kind of constructing a a black African perennialism, you know um, they're they're kind of creating like you know there there's this old saying of the diaspora creates the homeland, right? like they're they're kind of constructing. Africa as a land of spirituality
1: and a center of gravity for Islam. So now maybe the best place to start, uh, is with the leader. Can we, a, a man who goes by many names, Can you give uh, listeners a little bit of a background of him? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And so
2: I, it's really good to point out the issue of names. Um, w- in my work with the five percenters, I'm very clear about when we can call the man clearance and when we can't, you know, and, 1964, there's a very clear break. He's, his name is a law. That's it. Don't call him Clarence. This is like a Malcolm Little, Cassius Clay kind of thing that you're doing if you call him Clarence. Uh, I, I try to have that same kind of faithfulness to letting people name themselves or recognizing that people name themselves, rather, um, with the leader of this community. It's it's much more difficult because he did use multiple names. But consistently, through the 70s and the 80s, he was Isa al-Mahdi. Popularly, Imam Isa. Uh, he was born Dwight York. Um, he would use that at some point later in the you know in the early '90s. Uh, but also, he became really, really known as Malachi York. You know, post '93, early, early '90s, he became Malachi York. Um, so, but but he used a lot of different titles, a lot of different names, um, depending on the di- different resources that he was utilizing. You know, sometimes those would come with a new name or a new designation. So. I often refer to him as York because this is the best we can do for historical consistency. Um, And when I'm really into the Ansarullah period of his life, I I tend to go Imam Isa or uh, Al-Mahdi. Imam Isa Al-Mahdi, Al-Hadi Al-Mahdi was his name. Uh, So so it gets messy. So if I'm talking about Al-Mahdi as a person, if I'm talking about York as a person, that's the same guy. That's a short answer um, to the question of names. But uh, his background is, is, a little mysterious um i think more of the more of that will come out in the future but he was the, a teenager at state street mosque a very famous historically significant institution in brooklyn and state street mosque this is the, the 60s uh, state street mosque uh was a very diverse community there were black converts you know coming from different backgrounds there were um A number of transnational diaspora communities most significantly here a a sudanese diaspora community that was really really foundational for how young dwight york later imam isa would think about islam and islam's relationship to africa uh mariam jamila was there mariam jamila i i believe uh took her shahada you know with with the the imam of that mosque and um there's just a lot going on and there's significant tensions between some of these communities. So South Asian Muslims, Arab Muslims, African-American Muslims. This is this is an old story for people who study American Islam that uh, there's these questions of authenticity and authority. Who represents real Islam and who has the authority to speak for it and make judgments on it and say who's doing it right and who's not? Uh, so he witnessed this as a young man and he witnessed a tension between this discourse of islam as black power islam as black liberation as black consciousness black knowledge of self he had exposure to those kinds of narratives and that particular construction of islam but then he was also encountering anti black racism in muslim spaces and so i think those was very formative you know if we track his his literature and his media through the next 30 40 years we see this ongoing expression of where Islam comes from, who rightfully owns it. Even after he stops identifying as a Muslim, he has this uh, antagonism, you know, towards transnational uh, Muslim communities, specifically the ones that he designates as pale Arab as opposed to black Arab. Um, And that that would just be foundational to to his life from that point forward. Uh, In the early 70s, around the turn of the 70s, he's Engaging in what, what I call an Afrocentric Sufism, you know, a Sufism that was really informed by his encounter with with the Sudanese community in Brooklyn. And uh, he's going up and down the street, you know, with some of his um, cohort from the State Street Mosque doing loud zikers and you know, having a, a talking drum and they're living communally. And this this grows, you know, he's 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 a very voracious reader uh he seems to be really really devoted autodidact um very very early on he starts doing his own dawa his own preaching putting out his own publications and it just grows and by the end of the 70s they're a really really prominent presence in the muslim landscape of new york and then the northeast more broadly and they had even started going into the caribbean and expanding there um, Yeah, and his his archive was very eclectic, and we'll talk about that. Um, He gets into everything, everything that's available to him. You know, there's there's a a story that his mother was a member of the Yoruba Temple, so he's into Yoruba revivalism. Uh, He has encounters with every kind of conceivable vision of Islam available to him in North America at that time. Uh, He's getting into Black Israelite stuff. He's getting into Egyptosophy. He's getting into all these resources. And he makes his own he, he makes his own archive of materials that just kind of goes all over the place, but pulls it together at the same time and to, to shorten this. So as so we can get into you know, where we want to go, um, this antagonism with other Muslim communities, particularly Sunni communities and, and transnational Sunni communities, as well as his opponents in African-American Islam, um, a number of factors get to a point where he increasingly relocates to a commune upstate. I say downstate still, it's upstate from New York, but it's still, you know, I'm a real upstater. Um, if, if it's less than two hours away, you're not upstate. Uh, but, you know, he, he had this commune in, in the Catskills and he would spend time there. And then in the early 90s, he moved to Georgia with, you know, kind of a mass exodus. Like he makes this big hijra with his followers to rural Georgia. Uh, there with, with with recognition that, you know, this, I'm going to unpack some of this. Um, he gets more into Egyptosophy, more into extraterrestrial mythology and that kind of thing um, and really detaches himself from overt Muslim identity and he is now um, at that, that ridiculous MaxiMax prison, Ultra Ultramax MaxiMax prison in um, Colorado. Uh, he was, his commune in Georgia was raided, you know, around the early two thousands and he is um officially it was it was like rico kind of charges um but it was you know transporting minors for you know sexual abuse and and that kinds of thing um so he is going to spend the rest of his life in in this prison in colorado um and yeah we, we, we can get more into specifically you know how how he read these materials and what he did, but that, that's where he's at now. So.
1: Yeah. Is there, is there anything that we could say then about the Ansarullah community uh, before we get further into the interview?
2: Yeah. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> the Ansarullah developed, you know, in, you know, through the seventies in the early seventies, uh, early to mid seventies, he made York as uh, Matthew, he made a journey to the Sudan and, came back, you know, really identifying himself as a descendant of the Sudanese Mahdi, um, who had pushed out the the British and the Egyptians, um, you know, in the 19th century and, and, you know, claimed to be the Mahdi, claimed to be the the awaited person. And um, York latched onto this. And so he even, you know, named himself Isa al, al-Hadi al-Mahdi, you know, identifying with the Mahdi family um, as his great-grandson. And this became part of that, that package where Islam becomes innately Nubian, Islam becomes Sudanese, Islam becomes African, in his reimagining um, or his repackaging of it in the North American context, um, this put him... So see, he had a, a way in, the, in this community of kind of answering every community that he was going to run into. So against Sunni... Arab revivalists or or Sunni transnational revivalists or Sunni black revivalists. He had this reorientation of Islam towards the Sudan that, no, you you don't go to Saudi for your authenticity, go to the Sudan for your authenticity, to be authentically Muslim. Um, To the Nation of Islam, he had very much like, you know, mirroring Sunni revivalist critiques of the nation. He's like, you don't know real Islam. You don't have Arabic. You don't read the Quran the right way. You don't engage the Hadiths the right way. You don't know all, all this you know, intellectual tradition stuff. You don't have a connection to, you know, the heartland of Islam, the Sudan. So he could answer everyone, you know, on their own terms. And he had something for black Israelites. He presented himself as a devoted, you know, as a scholar of both Arabic and Hebrew. And that was very important to his self-presentation. The Ansarro Law identified itself as, there's kind of a black perennialism going on, you know, like a comprehensive engagement of, of all these traditions. They argued, you know, that the Quran tells you to follow the laws of Moses and read the books of Moses. Conversely, they would say the seventh seal in Revelation is the Quran and the Injil mentioned in the Quran is the book of Revelation. And so they have this this circular intertextuality thing happening where to be a true muslim you have to honor the sabbath you have to follow the laws of the israelites you have to um be versed in the book of revelation um so that they could say to muslims you don't read the bible they could say to jews and christians you don't understand that jesus is telling you to read the quran um so so he he mastered a a very deep archive of, of material um and he could answer everybody you know he had something for everyone so you know, his, his community would be, you know, having their tables out on, on the street, you know, um, in Harlem and Brooklyn. And if you were interested in Islam, they had that. If you're interested in Black Israelite stuff, they had that. If you, you know, depending on what version of Islam you wanted, they could speak to you. Um, and they, they produced a massive, massive corpus of, of literature um, to kind of meet everyone where they were. And, you know, the the scholarship on this community really didn't know what to do with that. So we we get different narratives of what their trajectory was. You know, did they start out Muslim and then became black Israelite or black Hebrew? Uh, Was it the other way around? Did they become Christian at one point? Did they become Shia at one point? Did they become more Sunni than they had been? Did they abandon Islam altogether? Uh, I've, I've seen like every possible way that this story could be told. And I think it's just based on, you know, the very select reading list that someone has okay well the copyright on this very sunni sounding book is earlier than this very christian sounding book so they must have gone from sunni to christian (laughs) excuse me and um it just doesn't work it just doesn't work so i have boxes and boxes and boxes in this office here um, that just make that so much more complicated than someone might take it to be uh even you know as as we move into the '90s, you know, his anti Sunni antagonism really becomes like a, a overtly a severe detachment from Muslim identity. Um, he goes through what people call a Jewish phase, and I really challenge that, and I can say why well, that, that's that's a troubled reading, <clears throat> even though they they kind of retroactively read say this for themselves, but they weren't saying it at the time. Uh, and then you know. Like I said, you know, in in Georgia, they go full Egyptosophy and UFOs and and all that. Um, But but again, you know, when I'm looking at their material from the early 70s and the the 80s, like it all to me reads as as one archive. There there is like an, an internal continuity to it that if you're really willing to spend time with this media, that, that really kind of manifests.
1: Yeah. So going, going back to the seventies and eighties, can you maybe talk a little bit about how the community related to other African-American Muslim organizations, like the Moorish science Temple, the nation of Islam, the five percenters, et cetera.
2: Yeah. So first on, on, on the point of, you know, what we might, again, these are, these are clumsy terms. We can, trouble these terms, but, you know, heterodox African-American Islamic traditions, um, nation of Islam, more science, five percenters. I would call it a kind of polemical embrace. So this community would publish the nation of Islam's lessons and publish the, the more science temple Quran, the, the circle seven Quran. Um, and they, they would publish these very, it it looks like a tribute, it looks like, you know, a, a celebration of this person's contribution, Elijah Muhammad, Noble Jurali, um, the former Clarence 13X, Allah. Uh, but when you get in there, when you get into the text, there is kind of a, a polemic happening, where okay, to the members of this community, you know, you bought this book, you know, you care about Elijah Muhammad, you care about Noble Jurali. Number one, they weren't qualified to really teach Islam. Number two, if they were here, they would be following me, because they knew this themselves. And Elijah Muhammad prophesied my coming, and Noble Jarlees said there would be one who could teach real and, and so on and so forth. Um, so we, what we all need to do is come together in unity. And unity, in this case, means following him, right? Subscribing to his authority. That Elijah Muhammad foretold his coming. Um, <clears throat> he had really, really complex conspiracy theory kind of narratives. So he had an evolving story about farad muhammad the founder of the nation of islam that you know the government had killed the real farad and replaced him with this fake Farad, and you know elijah muhammad he, like he, ha- he has a, an undying love for elijah muhammad that's consistent through every stage of his mission he loves and admires and claims the mantle of elijah muhammad but he also believes that elijah muhammad was very limited he was following the fake farad and elijah didn't have arabic and elijah didn't have classical training and and so on and so forth but elijah was preparing the stage for york for al-mati to come elijah muhammad understood that someone that that, that he was just making the table he was just putting the plate down and someone else is going to bring the food um there's this narrative that elijah muhammad had a vision of the letter lamb the arabic letter lamb and the way that York would read this vision, you know, he had, he had a, a hooked staff that looked like the letter lamb. and he would say, you know, this came to me, you know, this was handed down to me, you know, through kither, you know, the teacher of Moses, through the prophets, through, you know, this at one point was in the hands of Bilal, the Ethiopian companion of the prophet, who came from, who was a true Israelite, and Bilal came to bring this this hooked scepter to Muhammad as a union of the Israelites. Uh, and and Muhammad's Ishmaelite heritage, and that's been passed down to me. And Elijah told you that I was coming with this. That's what the letter lamb is. Uh, it was very creative. It was it was brilliant. I'm you know I mean there, there there's something addictive about the literature. There's something really compelling about it. Uh, he places himself in Malcolm X's autobiography. He says that he taught Malcolm X. You know he was part of you know when when Malcolm goes on Hajj and doesn't know how to do the things that. York is there, and he's the one who's, you know, helping Malcolm out. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he has a, a narrative of Malcolm being, you know, a victim of the Saudi state, that they took him, they got what they wanted from him, and then they killed him. Uh, so he, he has this way of co-opting these different traditions within the milieu of African-American Islam and bringing it all together. And even, you know, he goes in. he does the same thing with, with Black Hebrews, Black Israelite movements, Marcus Garvey, says Marcus Garvey was a Muslim, um, brings it all under his umbrella, that if you really love these people, if you really identify all of this as, as your narrative, your, your story, your collective struggle, you will find its culmination in him. And he also, he had something for Black Sunnis also. So his answer to Black Sunnis was, you know, to... He says, you know, when Elijah Muhammad says the white man's a devil, he was right. He didn't get the full truth of it. He didn't understand why, but he was right in saying that. Um, and York, <clears throat> as Mahdi, he projects this onto the early history of Islam. So the original Muslim community, the followers of the Prophet, are divided between pale Arabs and black Arabs. And the Prophet himself is a black Arab. Abu Bakr and Aisha are pale Arabs and they engage in this hostile takeover of Islam after the Prophet's death. So Ali and Fatima have to flee. They flee with the real Quran. They flee with it to the Sudan, where it's going to be preserved through the centuries. And Al-Mati, York, he has this, this reading of the schisms and the power struggles and the factionalism in early Islam uh, through this uh, this this racial lens, you know, through this... Um, through Elijah Muhammad's understanding that the, the white people are devils. So if you are looking to Saudi Arabia as the center of gravity, as the place where you go for the authentic and the authoritative, if you are going to follow what he called Pakistanians, who are, he identified as, as pale Arabs, um, who are white people in, in, his, in his categories, they are white people, um, you have been deceived by the shaitan, by the devil, um, because Islam is black. Islam is Nubian. Islam comes from the Sudan. Islam was preserved in the Sudan by the Prophet's family. The Prophet's family fled Muslim persecution, found their refuge in the Sudan, and uh, you know, with, with this kind of encroaching Saudi-driven Sunni revi- global Sunni revivalism, that the Deen Muhammad community, you know, post Elijah's death, is taking part in, benefiting from engaging in different ways, um, <clears throat> York has this way of of saying, you know, Black Sunnis are puppets of this pale Arab Saudi takeover, that pale Arab Saudi Sunni Islam is the same as white supremacist Christianity, and meanwhile, you know, there, there have been efforts within American Islam to recover Islam's Blackness, Noble Ali, Elijah Muhammad. Uh, and they all meant well, but they couldn't do it. I have the real thing. So again, like he he can take on black Sunnis, he can take on Nation of Islam, more science, but then he can also take on anti-Muslim Afrocentrists, you know, what Sherman Jackson called black orientalism. You know, this this Afrocentric critique of Islam as Arab hegemony imposed upon Africa. York would say, like, no, you're kind of right but not entirely like Islam is black. Don't look at the pale Arabs as being the representatives of Islam. Islam is yours. Uh, so it was really just a brilliant, brilliant series of what I, what I would call polemical embraces of, of these different traditions and communities.
1: Yeah. In the book, you, you discuss how uh, he was able to navigate between the two strands of the nation of Islam that developed and how he was in constant kind of polemical discourse with uh, Louis Farrakhan's Nation of Islam specifically, right? And at one point, he uh, publishes a polemic against them, and then he issues an apology, and then he withdraws the apology. Could you maybe get into that a little bit? Because I found that super interesting.
2: I think I'm really glad you brought that up, because I I think it speaks to the the complexity of how he engages these groups. Because like I said, he had this conspiracy theory about Farad. You know, he had this idea that there were multiple Farad's and, you know, at one point Farad's a Nazi and at one point Farad is a CIA agent and it goes kind of all over the place. And sometimes he has photo evidence that he presents is, that, oh, here's the real Farad and here's the fake Farad. Um, his mentor, Sheikh Dawood at State Street, he, sometimes he would cite as an authority on this. So he presents this this narrative about Farad and there was some trouble with the Nation of Islam. You know, They, they took offense to this. And he published an apology to the followers of Elijah Muhammad, to the nation of Islam. What's interesting here is that he doesn't say, okay, I, I've i been pressured to do this. I've been intimidated. I realized I kind of overstepped. I was wrong. I mean, he, you know, he, it's, it is an apology, but he's not giving the credit or he's not attributing this to the nation itself. He's saying Elijah Muhammad spoke to me in a dream and told me what's what. So he still, he still has this very intimate connection to Elijah. Uh, you know, if, if you look at the late 70s, you know, Elijah really wasn't on his radar before he died. He wasn't really, he was arguing more with black Sony groups. Um, but post post 75, really post 78, when Farrakhan is reviving the original nation, um, York becomes increasingly interested in this tradition, but he's, he's like a third party in New, in New York and the you know, broader Northeast. Because Waratim Muhammad, you know, contrary to the way people usually read that history, like like Elijah dies, Elijah's son Waratim takes over and then just flips a switch and everybody's Sunni. Um, Waratim Muhammad did a really complex navigation, you know, and, and he was speaking from a place as the charismatic, mystical heir to his father. He couldn't have undid that if he didn't have it already. You know, he had to speak as the one who was the special one, the next one coming, you know, the mujedid as he called himself. So he's doing that. Like he's, he's saying, he's speaking from a place of authority as heir to that tradition. Louis Farrakhan would make an alternate claim to be the heir of that tradition. And so York puts his hat in the ring and says, you know, no, it's, it's mine. You know, I'm, I'm the one that Elijah foretold. So that was the context. And he really never lets go of Elijah, even at his most, overtly, and I say overtly because it's, it's more complicated, but his most overtly anti-Muslim stuff, he's sticking to Elijah as like the greatest leader that, that Black America ever had.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: So you've touched on this a little bit, and I think this is the point where we can really get into it. Um, The community, as a lot of people see it, uh, goes through a number of changes, right? Especially in the early 90s. Uh, and this has led a lot of people to argue that the community has some unstable or incoherent core to it, and it just does whatever the leader says. Can you talk about why you challenge that reading? Uh, yeah, I mean,
2: first, I, I think a lot of it is just kind of ahistorical. So, again, they put out a lot of literature. I don't want to be too, you know, snarky about people not reading all of it because there's a lot of it. It's hard to find and you get what you get. You know, we're all just grabbing the part of the elephant that we're grabbing, you know, with with this massive archive. But people have tried to trace a trajectory of, oh, first they call themselves Hebrews and then they call themselves Muslims. And like I said, you know, it it goes in every direction. the, The number of different trajectories that people have claimed for this community. And that feeds into an image of them as this unstable, unthinking, incoherent, and you know, I don't use this word in the classroom, but cult, you know that they are just brainwashed, blindly following this guy who just on a whim says, "Okay, now we're Jews." Nope, now we're Muslims. Now we're UFOs. Uh, that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Um, these people knew that they were on a journey. and They understood that journey in different ways at different times. You know, sometimes retroactively they read it differently than they they did when they were going through it but they rationalized these changes that they went through. And they did go through changes. I don't deny that they went through changes, uh, but they rationalized these changes within their pre-existing pool of resources that they had. So, you know, one narrative is that around the turn of the nineties, York just suddenly became a rabbi and said, okay, we're, we're Jews now. They they didn't actually claim to be Jews like that. They're really emphasizing their Jewishness. And sometimes retroactively it's called a Jewish phase or a Jewish period in their history. Um, If you look at what they were actually saying during that time, they were saying Muhammad was a Hebrew. Muhammad was a Hebrew and he followed the laws of Moses. The Quran tells you to read the previous scriptures. And the problem isn't that they're Muslims or not Muslims. The problem is the Muslim world has erased this part of its own territory, its own heritage that People wanted to create a, a distinct, different religion. When the Quran says, you know, all the prophets are doing the same thing, right? Um, they understood it in their own terms. They held on to Muhammad. You know, they, they did different things with him, and they were, they're were very creative. The media is very creative in, in its in its use of Muhammad, but they said, This is what he we're truer to Muhammad than you are. Um, likewise, uh, you know, other materials that we often think of as representing distinct stages like okay, suddenly they got into extraterrestrials in the early 90s. He claimed to have come from a different galaxy in 1983. you know that, that, that's the earliest I found. There could be a text earlier than that. Um, he was doing stuff with ancient Egypt way 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 before he suddenly became the sparrow figure, you know um, that was part of his engagement of the Sudan. You know, he was talking about pyramids. He was talking about pharaohs. He was talking about, you know, ancient Nubia. He was saying that, you know, Ishmael's mother was, you know, born into Egyptian royalty, you know, or the Egyptian priesthood. It was all there. He has Abraham hanging out with Imhotep way, 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 way back. Right? So it wasn't suddenly, now we're into ancient Egypt. It was always there. Um, and, and when he decided to place new emphasis on a certain aspect of their, their material, it didn't come out of left field. It wasn't random. It wasn't just bewildering quote unquote, holy madness that some scholarship has called it like that. They're just so awestruck by his charisma that they're just going to follow these complete 180s. They weren't 180s. They, they, they were inside the same pool for, for most of their history.
1: In the book, you use this, the metaphor of a discursive control panel awesome. with multiple dials that, that were turned up and turned down at various points. I think that's a brilliant metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> um, uh, so, so the Ansar community, right? They, they make use of various religious traditions, right? Judaism, Christianity, Islam, UFO religion, Egyptosophy, et cetera. Right. But you also make a really, I think interesting argument that it's, it's not uh, productive to consider this syncretism. Yeah. Why is that?
2: Um, So yeah, speaking to the, the, the control panel, you know, it's not that to turn one dial up turns the other dial off. Right. Um, They are, they are all, and it's not that you only have this one panel and if you want to, other stuff you have to go to the other panel like it's all the same panel uh, we, we all draw these categories in, in different ways we have a sense of what looks islamic to us what looks jewish to us what's recognizably inside a tradition to us but um, we have to recognize that those boundaries aren't at the same places everywhere so if we look at the history of the nation of islam and and black sunnis These aren't two separate worlds um, that have nothing to do with each other and black Israelites. Like there's, there's so much exchange and encounter and, you know, the mixture is there before anyone is worried about mixture, right? So he didn't go from Islam to Egypt or blend in Egyptosophy into Islam. Elijah Muhammad was interested in Egypt. Elijah Muhammad was talking about UFOs. Elijah Muhammad was talking about Freemasonry. Uh, All all these different things that we think of as non-Islamic stuff that he brought in from outside, and he's just this master mixer who's just stirring the pot with all these ingredients that have had nothing to do with each other prior to him. Freemasonry, pharaonic Egypt, Hebrews, extraterrestrial, spaceship stuff that was all part of Islam before he got there he's not going outside of islam to find it his experience as a muslim opened doors maybe for him to go deeper into Egyptosophy and go elaborate you know find new readings on ufo's that are coming from non-muslim authors but it starts in islam for him all of that's islamic material so you know syncretism you know th- th- just this idea that someone starts out with these very distinct ordered categories and then decides to willfully just at random, sometimes just choose to, to mix and match them. Um, it doesn't necessarily meet what we see on the ground, and and sometimes this community will retroactively talk about having passed through distinct categories. Oh, we were Muslim and we were Jewish and we've always been Christian. I've seen the claim that we've always been Christian, um, but. I think it's really important to look at what they're saying in a particular moment because there's, there's no point at which he says, I'm going to take some stuff out of Judaism and put it in here, or we're leaving Islam and we're going through a Jewish stuff right now. We're going to we're going to have a Jewish phase for a while. And then we're going to go through another phase. He never does that and he never has to. And it's never that these things are alien or foreign um, or coming from outside Islam. It's already when, when he says I'm a rabbi and he says we're going to really push the Hebrew right now. That wasn't coming from outside Islam. He's been saying that was part of Islam for twenty years, you know, before that moment. Uh, so, you know, I, I think these traditions are always defined by, by mixture and by, um, you know, stirring up with what's outside. You know, but it's it's not so clear cut. And the way that an outsider might think of Islam and Judaism and Freemasonry, et cetera, may not be the way that it looks to people on the inside.
1: And you've talked a little bit about this already, but could you maybe speak more to the role of language in the community of Arabic and Hebrew and then eventually Nuwabic?
2: Yeah, so Arabic was super, super, super important for a number of reasons, you know, through much of the community's history. Uh, it was a marker of authenticity and a marker of authority. Those two, those two things we keep running into over and over again, authenticity. What makes someone a legitimate Muslim? What gives someone a legitimate knowledge of Islam? And, you know, there's been a lot of scholarship on the the significance of what Arabic does, particularly in communities where everyone doesn't speak Arabic. Right. So if you're, you know, in in a Muslim community that doesn't have Arabic as a first language, you know, for someone to walk in and have that represent something, even, you know, the early nations. So Farad was teaching from an Arabic Quran. Like he had to mediate between the Quran and his audience. And that really authorized Farad, the impression that he was the master interpreter of this other language. So the Ansarullah very early on emphasized, not only do you have to you know study Arabic to properly understand the scriptures, but they were boasting that they were creating the society that movements such as the Nation of Islam and Moorish Science Temple had attempted to but failed because they were raising their children speaking Fusat in the house. That their children had classical Arabic as their first language. That's when, when they're at the dinner table with, with their family, that's what they're speaking. And this was a real mark of pride for the community. You know, they, they embodied their understanding of Islam in ways such as dress and, you know, gender, relations and and the language was such a huge part of it and they could say look you know Elijah didn't have it Elijah had this vision of the letter letter lamb he didn't know what to do with that um, five percenters you know they say Allah means arm leg leg arm head but that doesn't work in Arabic you know, why are you using the devil's language to, to say what Allah is uh, and even Sunnis like you would say you know I doesn't have my Arabic orthe doesn't have my tools for understanding the scripture barakhan doesn't have any arabic so he you know he he could weaponize arabic and then in turn he would weaponize hebrew because the sunni arabs that he's arguing against aren't working with hebrew so he's like look you have to know all the scriptures all the languages you can't read the scriptures unless you understand the languages of god um so he really really you know in particular arabic was a very powerful resource for him uh later on you know and and we can chart uh, you know an ongoing escalating antagonism with, with other Muslim communities through the 80s uh, that ultimately kind of leads to where we're, we end up in the 90s. But um, he began to emphasize a very particular what he presented as a Sudanese, as authentic Nubian Arabic, and that kind of moved into its own language. So he has this Nuopic language that is, is kind of like everything the Arabic did for his authenticity and his authority against other Muslim groups. Um, Nuwapik just kind of takes him into another gal, like literally into another galaxy in a, in a sense. Um, the narrative I've heard about Nuwapik, uh, and, and if, you, if you read Arabic, you can look at Nuopic and make some sense of it. Or, or I mean, he starts out with, with Nubik, which is like a very, like, it looks Arabic-ish to me. Like I can... I can see some of it and then make educated guesses about letters that, that aren't clear. Um, but Nuopic would you know, kind of also reflect his later development, um, his, his developing Egyptosophy and, and things like that. But um, one narrative that I've seen was that Nuopic actually developed among children in this community who had a, a hybrid language that they spoke. I mean, so again, this is a community that just embraces Fusa as their first language. So all the funky things you see happen with language like that is going to happen here. So in the early nineties with the upstate community, um, downstate, you know, the, the upstate community, um, kids are speaking to each other in a language that incorporates Arabic, English, and Spanish. So for example, if, um, the KBR root would mean like great, they would say greater would be Akbar but then greatest would be Kaburist. So their superlatives would be this kind of hybrid of, of English and Arabic. And so York found that really interesting that they kind of developed their own language. And you know, we, we can speak to, you know, I mean, I, I can't really speak to his sincerity or his intentions at this point, but he, he embraced that. He embraced what they were doing.
1: Could we maybe talk for a moment about the relationship then also between uh, the community and hip hop as you get into in the book?
2: Yeah. Um, so The Islam and hip hop conversation, which I I have a a little bit of, um, you know, based on the stuff that I work on, like, like there's this, there's this Sunni co-opting of, of that, of the Islam and hip hop discourse. And I I feel very wary of calling it a co-opting because like, I I don't want to tell, and I, I can't tell communities how to make sense of the things that are valuable to them. Right. But, um, as someone who finds these traditions valuable, um, sometimes I, I, I take a little bit of, of umbrage at the ways that they're erased from it or kind of consumed within this hegemonic Sunni uh, re, reinscription. So, you know, several years ago, I, I caught a glimpse of a, a project that, that was like an Islam and hip hop project it was called rakim to rumi or something like that and you know I, I knew some of the people involved and i like and respect those people but um there was this way that uh hip-hop was being read as innately islamic in a way that would satisfy post elijah american islam you know a very war kind of uh you know sunni rewriting and people are talking about the, the islam in rakim it was a five percenter. Right. So they're talking about Islam and Rakim and they don't say his name was Rakim Allah. Right? That was his name. He was Rakim Allah. And he he was Allah. And he was God. And that was what Islam said to him. That's what Islam meant for him. Um, So, so yeah, so I, I, I like emphasizing that, you know, we, we see scholarship in, in this material that talks about knowledge of self as this innately, you know, that this, this inherent part of of black islamic tradition in the americas and um knowledge of self meant that you're god you know and and, and we erase that and i understand like, like traditions change and traditions develop and people decide what parts are, are useful to them or not um so, and and i it's certainly not my territory and my property to get in the way of that uh but but as as, as someone who really kind of went into those traditions without them needing to end up Sunni, <laughs> um, you know, I, 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 I wish sometimes that, that we had more, um, that some of the things that we washed out of these traditions that we, we, we don't, um, so the Ansar they, they don't have as the, the prolific presence in hip hop that the five percenters did, but there were numerous artists who affiliated with them. Most importantly, uh, the jazz who was you know Jay Z's who So, so you can look up the jazz and Jay Z originators on youtube and find this video where a very 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 young jay-z is in brooklyn with the ansars um and very 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 like just adjacent to that community and even making references and in his part of the song to ansar uh, racial mythology of amorites and nubians and, and that kind of thing um so it was there and and york himself had a He was an aspiring music mogul, in addition to all this other stuff he was doing. And he had this alternate persona of Dr. York. So before he called himself Dr. Malachi York in his religious discourse, he was Dr. York, the entertainer, a singer and a record producer and the owner of his own label, York Records in Brooklyn, that worked with all kinds of people. He was trying to promote his own kind of roster of artists. He worked with African Bambada. And uh, Dr. York wasn't a secret. So, so if you look at the pictures of Imam Isa al-Hadi al-Mahdi and the pictures of Dr. York, and Dr. York's putting out a Christmas album, and Imam Isa is saying Christmas is the devil, and, you know, like it, it very, it, it might look like uh, it might might be a weird look to, to outsiders, you know, but there, there are convert narratives where people knew him as Dr. York first. They're like, oh yeah, I, I knew Dr. York's music, and then I found out, oh, he's a scholar of religion, you know? Um, so it wasn't like he had this secret persona or this contradiction that people just couldn't wrap their heads around. He talked about it in his literature. He said, you know, I have to meet people where they are. If people aren't ready for Islam, people aren't ready for someone wearing a turban and a robe. That was like their garb at the time. Um, he's like, I got to meet them as Dr. York and that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be Dr. York and I'm going to bring them into Islam. And actually some people did come to Islam through Dr. York. Uh, so yeah, so there there's a, a rich tradition of you know this community intersecting with music and and york pretty consistently throughout his history um wasn't an anti-music you know he he treated music like language like clothing you know there's a right way to do it a wrong way to do it and don't do it the devil's way to do it um, you know do it the, the right islamic way and islamic music islamic instruments and stuff and and dr york didn't subscribe to that and it's dr york persona but again that was to open the door as as he presented it, it was to open the door for other people to come in
1: I would consider this interview a failure if I did not ask you about your visits to the Georgia compound that you write about. You don't write about it in this book, but you do write about it in your other book. Uh, one of your many other books, uh, blue eyed devil. Uh, could you talk about that for our listeners? Uh, I'm, I'm
2: glad, I'm glad that you, you mentioned that because, you know, I knew I was going to forget. <laughs> uh, so in 2003, I, I was on this project of I really wanted to have I wanted to to, to tell the story of American Islam in a in a kind of superficial uh, I don't know if it's superficial to me but um, in in a very you know firsthand I'm going to go out on the road and experience it and witness it with all my limitations and opportunities and and what have you and I, I really centered that on the question of Master Farad Muhammad you know the founder of the nation who was very enigmatic, very mysterious. We still don't know everything we want to know about him. He escaped history, really. Uh, And so part of that led me to the, like I said earlier, you know, the the really, really developed conspiracy theory kind of narratives that York uh, put out. So I tried to go to the commune in Georgia. It's a really you know, it's been torn down. Um, it's, it's, it was a really, really compelling aesthetic. You know, they had what you could call a a pyramid shaped Kaba, you know, and it it just blew my mind, you know, the the kinds of creativity witnessed in this community. It it was, it was pretty awesome. I didn't get to go in. And this was after you'd been arrested. So there was a very clear suspicion of, of outsiders and, um, I really didn't get anything out of it because I just drove by and and I didn't have the resources intellectually at that time to, to question, to rethink the cult narrative. And when I say rethink the cult narrative question, the cult narrative, I'm not saying that I'm trying to defend him or, you know, rehabilitate his image or anything like that. Like I'm not interested in him as a person. Um, People made meaning from, this body of literature people found truth in it that truth led them in all kinds of different directions uh he's kind of an assemblage like he didn't even necessarily write every word that he wrote like i know survivors of his abuse who said that they wrote much of that material um but i, I wasn't you know we, we have a tendency to to think of these communities squarely entirely in terms of their you know their quote-unquote evil mastermind, charismatic, manipulator, leader. Um, And I wasn't prepared to go beyond that. I saw them as just brainwashed, cult, fanatic type people. You know, And it was through years and years. and, And, you know, the experience of going to graduate school and doing the academic study of religion and knowing scholars of new religious movements who will, you know, work you through, walk you through the the cult narrative and you won't say the word cult anymore. You know, like I, I, um, I, I've had that journey and just looking at the complexity of their literature over the course of, of many, many years of going to their, their stores in New York and going to their tables. And, um, yeah, I mean, there, there's so much more to this archive, this, this corpus that, defies so much of that narrative and it was really regrettable to me the way that academic literature kind of took part and and enforced that oh they're so unstable and crazy and weird and they just switch religions constantly and they just follow this guy doing whatever and you know just 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 seeing what had been missed and seeing what had been ignored and neglected uh, and and misread to my eyes uh that that really became the engine for this project You know, after they moved to Georgia, they really became a new religious movement topic and they fell out of Islamic studies. So like, you know, Islamic studies in the 90s and the 80s, like you will find them mentioned, you will find them getting a page, maybe a chapter like they don't get a a ton of deep attention, but they're recognized as something that exists and their existence kind of stops when they get into other stuff. and we weave out the way that Islam remained a salient resource for them through those years. Uh, so I, I really wanted to bring them back into Islamic studies and, you know, I, I've, I've said some, I, I made, I made a dramatic statement in, um, one of my writings on them, not, not this book necessarily, but I say that Malachi York, AKA Imam Isa al-Hadi al-Mahdi was the most significant American Sufi leader in the 20th century. And, and, and I, I stand by that. I stand by that. Um, he did have a Sufi Tariqa that was part of the community. It was adjacent to the community, um, Sons of the Green Light. And the study of American Sufism says nothing about him. There, there's numerous publications on American Sufis. He's never counted. His community is never counted. Um, even when you know they, they were identifying as Sufis. It's, uh, you know, he didn't have, you know, I mean, if, if you're Frithjof Schwan or Baba Mohia you have academics who are your followers and they will put your name out there and, um, the story of American Sufism will be your story. Uh, he didn't have that, York didn't have that advantage. And I'm not saying that York as a human being deserved, you know, any kind of moral or ethical sense that he deserved that attention. I mean, we could also talk about Frithjof Schwan, you know, on that level, but, um, (laughs) <laughs> but, but you know, uh, for a number of reasons, you know, that number one, American, the study of American Sufism is still catching up to recognizing that, you know, black Muslims are part of Sufism and that Sufism is part of black Islam uh, and that these categories don't have these absolute borders between them that we think they do. Uh, so number one, study of American Sufism still has to think more about black religion than it has. And you know, the, the study of, of this community has to recognize what's what's there. study And the study of American Islam more broadly has to recognize what's there and, and take these things seriously.
1: So there's there's one last tradition mm-hmm. for the New Books Network, which is what are you working on now? Uh, yeah,
2: I, I appreciate that. Um, and I really, again, I really appreciate this opportunity. I, I know, like, talking about this community can go in so many different directions, and I feel like I, I do go in a lot of different directions, and I, I'm really grateful for the chance. If, if it's... it's hard sorting me out like talking about it like it's it's hard sorting out this material like again there's a lot of it Um, but anyway where where I'm going now uh, I'm working on a few things I'm working on the lessons properly popularly known as the supreme wisdom lessons the the catechism of the nation of Islam I spent a lot of time on that and so that should manifest in the next year or so Uh, I'm also you know, I, I have a few things at different stages of development. I, I'm working on my uh, Islamic engagement of uh, Deleuze, which you know Deleuze was was part of my dissertating process and part of my book Muhammad's Body. So the, the book is called Muhammad's Body. You know, prophetic networks and the the or the Barca networks and the prophetic assemblage. I'm, I'm messing up my own title, but the word assemblage is in the title, so it's like you, you see the Deleuze, it's there. Um, <clears throat> and uh, you know, I talk about the Nabi without organs, the NWO, which was my way of smuggling pro wrestling references into my work. Um, so so I, I, have, I have a book on Deleuze. I have a book on the lessons. And I'm presently going back into the, the quote-unquote classical stuff. And I'm working on a book on The Prophet, which I think is you know really an ongoing journey with me of, of what does this man mean to me personally. And and that, I think, informs every day of my my life as an academic. So I'm, I'm going back into there and you know, uh reconsidering my my journey and, and rethinking the state of the field. And you know, like the, the personal and the academic, it's it's not getting untangled <laughs> for any of us. Definitely not for me. Uh, so I'm doing some me search there as as we say. But yeah, so I have three things coming out the lessons, the laws, and Muhammad. Uh, Wonderful. at point in the next two years. I'm and then I don't know what happens because It's, it's been, I've been kind of obsessed with a book one way or the other for 20 years now. Um, I wrote the taco cores in the winter of 2002, so I don't know what's next and I might get weird again. I don't know. That's, that's a possibility (laughs) because sometimes I miss being weird, you know, like, um, I haven't, I haven't had any kind of ayahuasca journeys or anything like that. So, uh, maybe it's time to, uh do something that's not peer-reviewed.
1: <laughs> well, inshallah, we can get you back on for yeah. that as well. Thank you. That'd be great. The book is Metaphysical Africa, published in 2020 with the Pennsylvania State University Press. Professor Michael Muhammad Knight, thank you so much for your time.
2: Thank you. It was awesome.